Hi there. Welcome back to the Real Film Chronicles podcast. As always, I'm Nathan. And I'm Brian. And in this week's exciting episode, we're going to be talking about a little film called Infinity Pool. The latest film released by Brandon Cronenberg. While staying at an isolated island resort, James and M are enjoying a perfect vacation of pristine beaches, exceptional staff, and soaking up the sun. But guided by the seductive and mysterious Gabby, they venture outside the resort grounds and find themselves in a culture filled with violence, hedonism, and untold horror. (laughs) This was one heck of a ride. You know you're going to get into some trouble when you're in a Cronenberg film, father or son. Yeah. Or daughter now. I believe his daughter is coming out with a movie as well, right? Really? This is fantastic news. I had no idea this is great news. I love it. Get all the Cronenbergs behind the camera. These movies are are something else. Infinity Pool. Wow, this this movie was was bonkers as expected. Um, where do we even start with this? What was what was your first impression of this movie when after you watched it? Um my first impression was it was definitely Cronenbergian. Yeah, I think with Brandon Cronenberg, I've been watching his movies. I think does he just have the three feature length films currently? I believe so. We've got Possessor released in 2020, event antiviral. Yeah, uh, released probably like a decade previous. I think that was 2012, and I think the rest of his movies have been uh, short films. Yeah, so I've been watching his movies with a bit of trepidation because I think. There's maybe some pressure or expectation that he's going to, like, obviously from his father's influence on his films, right? And yeah. you can see you can see the obvious influence of David Cronenberg on Brandon Cronenberg's films. Um, but really, I think it became really clear watching Infinity Pool that this was a Brandon Cronenberg film. Yeah. And you could see, like, okay, you could see the influence of his father and his father's work. You could also see this was the voice of a unique filmmaker who had something specific to say and brought their own style to it. And I I think with Infinity Pool, I finally kind of relaxed a little bit. It was weird. It's a weird way to put it, but I was always worried about, oh, is he just like aping his father's work? Any anxieties I had in that regard are are completely, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Misplaced, I should say. Fair enough. I always kind of had this thought that like in his first couple movies there, especially his first movie, you just picture his father kind of standing on set, like standing side by side, kind of yeah. like helping direct him. It's just like, you know, father and son family taking it, taking this, uh, this art, uh, and, and producing these movies together. But I, I totally agree, especially with this movie, it feels like, uh, they're still following some of the same themes and like that style. Absolutely. And like the body horror, especially, but he, Brandon Cronenberg is stepping out into his own, his own voice, like his own voice comes through in this movie. This might be a good time for this quote, which I just ripped from Wikipedia. It's a uh, quote from uh, Jeanette Katsoulis from the New York Times Okay, uh, in, in her review of, the, of this movie. It says, while the elder Cronenberg might be fixated on the disintegration of our bodies, his son is more concerned with the destruction of our souls. And that seemed especially relevant. (laughs) Especially relevant with Infinity Pool, yeah. Infinity Pool and I think Possessor, which really like had that absolute breakdown. Like they were doing all their stuff with their minds and they had complete breakdowns. Like, oh, that put it into a bit of a a nice light that um, there is a differentiation here between the, uh, the elder and the younger Cronenberg. But Infinity Pool, man, this movie is full of ins- insanity. I managed to catch this in theater. I think it was only in our theaters for like a week or two. Uh, we went to check this out, and it was it was kind of funny because as we're, we're as we're settling in, this group of younger, maybe like late teenagers, early twenty somethings. I think they were like uh, college students came in, and there's probably like nine or ten of them. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, like this is going to be a rambunctious crowd. And one of them turns to me and and asks, just like, uh, what what movie is this? Like, what what are we about to watch here? I'm like, what? this is Infinity Pool. He's like, oh, we're in the wrong theater. And so they all back out. And I think <laughs> it was kind of like a collective sigh of relief because it's like, this is 
everyone else who's here knows this is going to be a weird movie. There's going to be a lot of awkward moments and there's, there are definitely a lot of those moments, different scenes in the movie where you're like, this is uncomfortable. Like I'm not going to be, I can't watch this like with my, with my family. You know what I mean? It's just like, uh, let alone with a bunch of strangers, but I really felt like we were all on the same page. Uh, The theater picked up on a lot of the humorous beats throughout the movie because there were, was quite a bit of comedy. This I, I felt uh, dark humor. I, mean, it, I think it's right? dark. Yeah, it's fair to uh, to put out there. It is dark humor. It so it was a pretty good crowd. And when the awkward things were happening, uh, like the beach, um, how do we how do we call it? Um, you know what? This is a rated M for mature uh, podcast. It's the hand job scene. You oh, can yeah. still feel the crowd. It's just like, yeah, we're, we're all we all know this is awkward. This is, but we're all adults here. This is fine. We're we're watching cinema right now. <laughs> Absolutely, there were still some scenes, and I know there's been dialogue around like David Cronenberg's recent movie Crimes of the Future, which we discussed on another recent episode, and this one too. When I was reading reviews and things online, and people were saying, "Oh, it's not as shocking as I thought it would be." Yeah, I don't know whether people are genuinely that desensitized or whether it's some of that like false bravado where it's like, Oh, that didn't shock me. Like, Oh, that, that was just like run of the mill, um, you know, disemboweling, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> or, you know, those just, uh, I've seen men beat each other and crush each other's skulls. Like no big <laughs> deal, bro. Like, I don't know whether it's, this is child's play. Yeah. Cause like some of the scenes I was watching, I was genuinely, taken aback or, or shocked especially at another scene i guess spoilers uh full spoilers or- ahead yes there's, there's a big orgy scene later on yeah yeah and it starts off very i think phantasmagoric is the word for this and it starts off as like okay it's kind of a little bit psychedelic because he's on this this kind of um local hallucinogenic aphrodisiac kind of yep. drug and it's like okay it's psychedelic and there's and the orgy's happening but then things get really the imagery slowly starts to get more perverse and distorted and the bodies yeah. start literally merging together and you have people's faces <laughs> all distorted and people tearing faces off and, 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 and nipples getting long things coming out of nipples. Oh, that one, that was weird. That was, that really was a weird. weird one where like I was, I was scrunching up my face where it's just like, uh, there's still that kind of stuff. And like, I've been like, you and I talked about this as well, both on, and off the podcast about being desensitized to that on-screen yeah, violence yeah. to a degree we are, but we're still like, I still get uncomfortable watching some of the work from Cronenberg senior and junior. And I think it has to do with not necessarily how graphic things are on screen, but the context of those Definitely. things. Cause if you just yeah. show a bunch of people getting chopped up, I don't know. It doesn't bother me, but for some reason, like the, that distortion of the human body in weird kind of uncanny ways. And I feel really, really unsettled, or maybe it's the mixing of, because you're watching that. And it's a very, there's a very titillating scenes in this movie of, of naked writhing bodies or naked dancing bodies. But then all of a sudden they get like distorted and yeah. they're mutilated or they're mixed up. And maybe it's that uncanny Valley. Maybe it's the context for me like psychologically and cognitively as I'm watching this, like this is really, really unsettling in a fundamental way. That's very different than like a visceral watching somebody getting chopped up or disemboweled or something. And maybe that's the difference is the, is the context as opposed to literally how much blood is shown on screen. Although this was quite bloody as well in certain parts, more bloody than any, like David Cronenberg's work is certainly grotesque and violent, like in the horror genre, but I don't remember any of his movies being this, having that much like blood, fake blood on set. I think you're absolutely right. And it's like the context plays so much into it because I'm thinking of horror movies, like a lot of slasher films, ultra violent. Yeah. We, we watch them. There's gallons of blood being shot out. Like they are a different type of reality because when people, you know, they're not going to explode like this. Even Cronenberg, uh, the famous head explosion in scanners. It's like, yeah, it's, it's fantasy at that point. But here, there's a probably the most violent scene near the end where uh, Skarsgård is, is killing "quote unquote" the dog uh, by yeah. smashing <laughs> his head in. It's very effective. It's really disturbing, and it's like 
I don't want to say it, but like it's an appropriate amount of blood. Like the the yeah. camera lingers on his hand, and like every time it goes in for a punch, there's just a little bit more. But it's very like goopy, like viscous, like dark uh, blood that's covered his hand. And you're like, oh, like we're not seeing tons of blood spatter. Like if this was a, a crazy action movie or a slasher movie, you would see sprays of blood coming up uh, from the bottom of the screen. But like this, this is just something else. Like yeah, there's bodily. Pretty much every bodily fluid you can think of is in this movie. Yeah. Um, from blood to breast milk and even uh, human ejaculate, uh, which they show on screen. Um, every And everything in between. <laughs> There's probably some tears and sweat in there as well. Oh, yeah. Anything, anything that can come out of the human body comes out of the human body in this movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess that's like the next level of like, well, what can we do here? Well, it's like, well, we got to show like ejaculation in movies. And it's like, this is not the first time in the past few years we've seen that. The Green Knight had a scene like this as well. Yes, that's right. And it's just like, here we have this again, and we're going to see this more and more. And I think maybe it's a, a good opportunity to just mention that there was or is an NC-17 cover of this film that was shown at uh, f- film festivals recently. And the one we got in theaters and even video on demand right now is the paired back R-rated version. And I think those two scenes we mentioned are the biggest uh, benefactors of the NC-17 cut where we see more yeah, in it. We see more imagine. of the violence and we see more of the the forbidden hand job at the beach um, <laughs> <laughs> without going into too much detail there. And I'm sure there's lots of more little touches, especially that, that dr- <laughs> I was going to say that dreamy uh, orgy scene, but uh, <laughs> oh, it's so, what, it's so what's dreamy. A better ter- <laughs> what, what's a better term? Hallucinogenic. I use terms like psychedelic. Psychedelic. Yeah. Yeah. Hallucinatory. Fa- phantasmagoric. <laughs> And you're like, oh, it's, it's dreamy. It's, yeah. <laughs> they're so, that Alexander Skarsgård is so dreamy. <laughs> Listen, some are, some people's dreams are, uh, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. But I want to say that immediately reminded me of uh, David Fincher's sex scene in Fight Club. And I remember a commentary of how. Okay. Right? Because it's like, oh, Fincher is never going to just direct like a regular sex scene like you're going to see in a drama or some thriller or whatever. It's going to be weird. And that one was weird. The camera motions, it's just like those aren't necessarily real people we're seeing. And this was kind of the same way. It starts out. And of course, they're on the psychedelic uh, a drug of some sort. And it's just it gets crazier and crazier. And it's just like what you're seeing on here is not not reality. But it is bonkers. And this is, it cuts so fast too. I'm just like, Cronenberg and his editor must be having a field day cutting, the, splicing this whole thing together. And I imagine the the MPAA or the ratings boards going in be like, we got to cut out maybe about 15 seconds of this two minute long orgy scene to bring it down to like a hard R rating. It was just, uh, it was just crazy. It's one of those scenes that definitely comes down like they're going through frame by frame to seeing how much, exactly how much they can get away yeah. with. Which also reminds me of another movie, uh, Event Horizon, where they sort of flash over to the, like the hell dimension and it's yeah. just a bunch of like gnarly torture and like really gross things happening. Very kind of Hellraiser-esque kind of image. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just like people will take the, you know, their DVD or Blu-ray, or whatever, and like just slow that down, like cut out each scene. And it's just like, I think even uh, uh, Event Horizon, they had to cut a ton of stuff out of that that montage to get them down. And all like people want to see the original gnarly versions of those. I still I was reading that. I think you had sent me the article about Event Horizon and that long the long lost footage, yeah, yeah. the alternate cut that apparently was stored improperly and degraded. So we'll, we'll never see the the true vision of Event Horizon. And that's one of the one of the things that keeps me up at night. <laughs> it's true. I need to see more visions of that, that hell. <laughs> I just really want to know. I was like, who was the director? Was that uh, Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson? No, uh, I want to say Paul W.S. Anderson because Paul, Paul W.S. Anderson, right? Yeah. Is it Paul? Thomas Anderson, who does a little more maybe upscale yeah. films. Yeah, I, and I always get those <laughs> upscale. Yeah, I know that's that's uh, that's one of the topics I think we always uh, we just kind of dance around. Like, was you're really big into horror, and I'm I have my my toes dipped into horror a little bit more than maybe mainstream audiences, and I think there's still that um, urge, maybe or the tendency rather to really disregard horror as a, like a legitimate yeah yeah genre. And see it more as oh it's it's sleazy B movie schlock as opposed to 
I think there's a term now, elevated horror, that I think a lot of people will balk. Like a lot of horror yeah. fans will turn their nose up at because it's implying that disparity and there's, you know, who gets to decide what's important horror and what's not. Yeah, yeah. Like, sleepaway camp, not important horror. You know, what what's important horror? It has to be hereditary. It has to be, like, a deep discussion of, you know, man's soul. Or can it be just entertaining, like the equivalent of yeah. Top Gun Maverick, right? Where it's still a great movie, um, has some themes, but it's not like, you know, earth shattering in that way. So yeah, maybe there's a discussion to be had because I think Brandon Cronenberg's films and Infinity Pool specifically, you know, it's dealing with, you know, really important themes. And it's really, I, I think we keep using this term, for, especially for movies we really like, really like richly layered thematically there's so much going mm-hmm. on beyond the surface or like he's telling a story to explore these bigger kind of more important ideas and i think it's really breaking down like he and david cronenberg really breaking down that border between elevated horror and non-elevated horror and also you know horror and the horror as other genres because like you can explore these ideas either in a horror or a musical or a drama or comedy take, oh, yeah. and you had different takes on them, but they're not, you know, higher or lower art per se, just because they're in a certain genre. Yeah. It's almost like bad movies, uh, low budget movies. And this is almost goes hand in hand with like, say the eighties, nineties horror movies. They can still have lots of themes present, right? Like the talent, the writers behind it, they're still layering all the stuff yeah. into it. It's almost like a in an in industry thing, what we're willing to support. And I immediately think of, you know, Friday the 13th movies and we get, you know, a dozen of them. Yeah. And they still have their themes and stuff. They're just presented in a haphazard way that they're, they're kind of like B-films. And now this elevated horror is just like a way to kind of like differentiate because it has. I guess so. Horror has, might have that stigma as well, like coming from the 80s and 90s, and probably less so now uh, with the new generation, you know, kids born 2000, in the year 2000 and, early, and later, would have a totally different take on it. It's just like, those movies are ancient history to them, and now they've been exposed to so much, quote unquote, elevated horror that their horror genres are going to be, like, they may not even need to refer to it as elevated horror. Uh, like, this is, these are... Yeah, exactly. Not necessarily the big budget, because something like Blumhouse has shown that you can throw $8 million at yeah. at a movie, and it's going to make $60, $70 million, and it's going to look good. These are just, like, really well-produced, richly themed and layered uh, horror movies that, you know, some of these things have been explored in other horror movies over the past 50, 60 years, but here we are with, like, a new generation presenting us a lot of really interesting things on screen. And I think maybe some of the special visual effects can kind of push that along. And we have different filmmaking techniques to really like bring together a tight, a tight ship of a film. And maybe that's where a lot of it's coming from. We got to talk about some of the themes here. Like for me, the big theme that I walk away with this is, is basically just that eat the rich thing. Right. I, I assume this is like the big theme, but, and I don't know if you want to talk more in detail about it. I assume you also picked this up as well. This movie is following a recent trend, uh, not just in horror movies, but a lot of thrillers that, uh, like, I think, I don't want to say, like, Parasite got it started, but it was the biggest film, you know, over the past few oh, years yeah, to get the right. Academy Award. And it's like, it's it's Eat the Rich as well. Uh, Triangle of Sadness is another movie that came out last year that kind of follows a, a similar uh, structure, a little more comedy and a bit of uh, like gross out stuff going on. Not necessarily horror, but Cronenberg take on Eat the Rich. I mean, this is this is going to be really interesting stuff. Literally, here, right? Like this rich. is probably <laughs> like I wasn't like too into Triangle of Sadness, but this one with similar themes. Yeah, I'm, I'm into this quite a bit more. I'd like this presentation. It really reminded me too recently of uh, Glass Onion. Um, I think thematically yes. it fits in with that. And, and to an extent, Knives Out as well, right? I saw that comment that Knives Out, it, I mean, like you could say uh, uh, Daniel Craig's character, the detective is kind of like the, you know, the, the average person and all the, the, these rich people are caricatures of different political systems and whatnot and, and political, political and social systems. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, I don't think I actually saw that at first, but now that they mentioned it, it's like, that's a really 
Man, Knives Out is so good. And Glass Onion, amazing movies. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely, 100%. But I thought of those two. Yeah, thematically, and I think um, it's something important, right? I mean, this is, yeah, it's kind of a savage takedown of the tourism industry. Uh, oh, specifically, yeah. um, Trivago can't be happy about this one. Uh, <laughs> Trivago. <laughs> <laughs> All the resorts, right? You look at one of the big themes in terms of, I think it was exploring specifically like ideas of privilege and power. Um, specifically through that lens of the tourist industry and looking at that as a metaphor for larger structures of power and specifically exploitation. Because you see when, was it James? Is that yep. the Alexander Skarsgård's? Yeah, James Foster is Alexander Skarsgård. James Foster, yeah. Foster, obviously, David Foster Wallace, American novelist, which there was actually a movie made about his life starring Jason Segal, actually. Oh, nice. Um, but yeah, so it was themes of power and privilege and exploitation, specifically through the lens of the tourism industry, and specifically through there was a group of people who pull in um, James Foster, who's the main character played by Alexander Skarsgård. You find out through the course of the the movie that um, they've been doing they've been very very naughty uh, at this resort over the years in this. Uh, in this fictional country, yeah. So essentially, what happened? What happens in this country is like, was it La, La Toka? Now, I'm gonna say it's Litoka. Litoka, yeah. It's a fictionalized country, obviously meant to be like Dominican, Caribbean, like Mexico, like all these different resorts, right? That like that kind of resort culture. And just as a aside, the movie was filmed mostly in Hungary and Croatia. Yeah, just to give you an idea of like the, the oh, that's look amazing. of the movie right there. Yeah. Man, that's amazing. Like Hungary and Croatia. I want to visit Hungary and Croatia now. That's pretty, like those are some beautiful shots like uh, the, of the uh, the countryside and whatnot and the beaches and whatnot. But, yeah, that's awesome. But essentially what happens in this, it's a very politically and socially conservative country. And uh, a lot of the penalties for any infractions of the law are you get put to death. Yeah. So essentially anything, like what happens with James, he's driving late at night after they all go out and party, lights on the car working properly, accidentally hits and kills this farmer. They all get in trouble, get down to the police station and say like, yeah, in the in our country, in our culture, if you kill someone, then their family, in this case, his son, gets to, by, by legal right, he gets to kill the, the person who killed yeah. his father. But... He said for specifically, I think for diplomats and tourists, if you have enough money, they have this process or, or procedure. They call it, I think, um, it's like a cultural tradition, the doubling. Yeah. And essentially, it's a cloning process where you, if you have enough money <laughs> and you break the law, you kill someone or what was the other one? Like murder, rape, all, all the all the big, all these big crimes, the big ones, you get killed for them. But if you have enough money, you can pay to have a go through the doubling procedure and you can have your double be killed in your place with the catches. You have to be, you have to be present to watch the execution happen. (laughs) Yeah. It's a public, well, I shouldn't say public execution, but like there is a gallery of people and you have to be there. The family of the victims. Yeah. Yeah. If there's any, if, if there are any family surviving, but what happened, it comes out that James and his, and his wife, M played by that is Cleopatra Coleman Cleopatra Coleman yes they're kind of pulled in with this uh, with uh, this other couple played by Mia Goth and who's the other gentleman's name uh Jaleel Lesbert and it turns out that they and a group of their friends have actually been coming to this resort for many years and behaving very naughty doing getting all kinds of trouble because they realize that, oh, it's consequence-free. I can do this. I can create a double, and they can die in my place. And I don't think you have to dig very far, first of all, for that surface-level commentary of yeah. specifically people from the West going to the backyards of these local people where they have these giant, ostentatious luxuries resorts built up, and there's a certain exploitation of that of that country's infrastructure to support this that you don't you don't see on the back end of the social and economic impacts of yeah. having these giant luxury 
hotels put up in these places. Um, cultural appropriation is a theme in here as well. But essentially, tourists can go over there, do whatever they want, consequence-free if they have the money, and then go yep. back home as if nothing happened. It's a, a stunning indictment on specifically the kind of one percenters or 0.1 percenters, but I think on um, Western society as a whole. And, you know, you look at, oh, yeah, our nice family vacation is built on the backs of, you know, exploitation of of these countries in a very literal and direct way from the taking up valuable land to the, you know, exploiting their workforce yeah. to and there's a theme of cultural appropriation to the whole thing where they have there's like a Chinese restaurant where people who are obviously not Asian dressed in um, some very uncomfortable ways uh, yeah. I think there's a a Bollywood dance yeah, scene yeah. which is obviously <laughs> it's like the well it's the resort staff putting on a yeah, Bollywood exactly. dancing like presentation there's one scene in the back room with like these people in exaggerated costumes of like Hasidic Jews that really, really drives the point home. Uh, and the thing is, all these rich people, they don't actually care that these are caricatures or cultural appropriations. They're just there looking to have a good time. And they don't care at whose expense that they have that good time at, right? And it's um, the other side of it, too, I think, because it is definitely about, about exploitation. And, and it's such a good point where... These resorts take up like the best land, the best beachfront property. And a lot of the times locals are not allowed into this area anymore uh, to go explore their own country, right? And here the country is also complicit. In this case, it's like the police force kind of specifically, I think, and, and like the- The government, I should say, right? The government in in coordination with the, the tourism industry, because they even say this is kind of like held up by the tourism industry is that it becomes a selling point. Come to our country. We have the technology to double people. And if you have enough money, but they don't fully tell people because James and his wife come here, they don't know about this. Guests are limited to being on the resort only. They're not allowed to leave. But of course, these people are going to leave, do bad things, get in trouble with the law. And then they can go through their doubling process. And then it becomes like, the destination place to come every year for these one one percenters is to come and just cause havoc. And they, it's so brutal because they just go out, they murder people, right? These people, these locals are not going to be able to just go double themselves. They're, they're gone. And it's not made explicit, but I don't know if the same courtesy is extended to the, their own people. I don't think so. No. Right. They specifically mentioned to diplomats and tourists. So like there's this sense that, because it's a poorer country and they need money yeah. that they're really, they're being in a sense kind of forced into a position where they're literally having to sacrifice their own people because people are getting murdered and, you know, beaten up and, and worse in order to get more money for the doubles to be killed in their place, to be yeah. killed like the surrogate, uh, surrogate um, sacrifice. So it it gets really, really dark when you start to think about the implications for the general people versus yeah. versus the government. And like, again, going back to the real world's um, implications of what impacts we're having on their economy. What, what, what will they let those developers and tourists get away with that they wouldn't let their own people get away with in order to bring in that extra money, right? Yeah. That, so ex- exploiting people based on we have money or we have power that you need and people's lives are literally what the cost of that money is. And it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of sick and twisted, but it's even more sick and twisted when you think about the real life parallels and the real life implications of that. One of the most damning scenes I found was James discovers about this process. He's pulled into this group. I think there's six or seven of them and he's been doubled like that morning. He witnessed his yeah. own execution. Later that night, he's out with his with his group, and they're like, "Let's go cause some trouble." They go off site. They break into this fling. They hold people at gunpoint. They end up just getting into a gunfight, murdering people. And the the next scene is the whole group of them at the police station now. Yeah. And the detective from earlier comes in, and he's just like, "You know what? Like, we can appreciate you guys coming in here." Uh, taking advantage of our country in this way, but it's like, we do have our limits. And 
we have to make an example of this one. This one, you've gone too far. And the whole group oh. of them is brought into like the, I want to call it the execution. Amazing scene. Like hallway, the, the pit of execution. The hall of execution. And our characters would be like, oh my God, like they're actually going to kill us here. We didn't go through the doubling process or something. Right? Like they sort of skip that scene. And Skarsgård is James, one of the first characters to have his throat slit. And at that exact moment, the audience starts applauding and it turns around and all of our characters here, the six or seven are watching like a group execution and you realize, yeah, they all signed up for this and the police department are in on the theatrics. Like they didn't have to go to all this length and trouble to like satisfy them. There's just like, no, they're doing this on their own and there's nobody here, no family member to go, uh, you know, take the, deal out of the punishment. It's just random police uh, that are just here to kill them. It was really, it was a pretty, pretty brutal. It's just like, it drives that point home pretty hard, but it's like, this is what these places are doing. Like they're willing to prop up their tourism industry at the expense of their own people and just let these rich folks essentially just do whatever they want anywhere they want in the world. Yeah. I think it ties into, there's this idea, there's a, there's a maxim that, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, there's also another uh, phrase I've heard, something along the lines of power doesn't change your character, it reveals your character. And I think I think both are true to some extent. I wouldn't agree with either of those completely, but I think if you look at, specifically, there's been news stories over the years and very recently where celebrities and people with money getting into all kinds of trouble doing things that you and I would think like, why would you even, why would you even consider doing something like that? And I think there's this idea that if you imagine you had zero consequences, right? Mm -hmm. You had zero consequences and you had enough money where effectively it was, it was effectively infinite, right? You could do anything. You could fulfill your wildest fantasies tomorrow. You could choose to be whoever you wanted to be what would that person be that you chose to be, right? If you took down all those barriers and you, and you see um, not to sympathize with ultra rich people, but maybe to empathize where like having that level of privilege Mm -hmm. and that level of power completely warps your worldview. Imagine you could fill all your, every fantasy you had sexual and otherwise you could fulfill tomorrow. There's something to be said for the challenge of achieving those things, right? of working hard to kind of meet those goals. Imagine you could just tomorrow magically have all your goals met. I think there's something to be said about like that level of maybe boredom or ennui where you feel like, oh, I have to keep chasing that high. And in order to chase that high, I need to do take another step towards maybe something that's considered taboo or depraved to get that thrill again or that high. Maybe you take another small step and another small step and all of a sudden you find yourself, for example, on Jeffrey Epstein's island or something, right? Not to not to excuse that type of behavior again, not to sympathize with people um, who do these terrible things or who make these bizarre choices, but to maybe empathize and maybe understand like there's a a curse, maybe the curse of of that kind of privilege, right? Of not understanding, of, of not having those consequences. People always think of it as like, oh, I would love to have a billion dollars and be able to do whatever I wanted. But really you probably don't want that, right? Because without that, without that context of consequence, I think there's more of a temptation to be our worst selves or to keep trying to chase that high. It's almost like um, you look at um, somebody who's an addict um, and you get um, not, not desensitized to drugs, but you build up a tolerance. You build up a tolerance to that. So imagine that, like, I think in this movie specifically, in Infinity Pool, it's almost as if these, this group of tourists, these rich tourists have built up, like, they've, uh, they have like a very high moral tolerance where they, they've done all these things and they've gotten away with it consequence free. So why not do take the next step? Why not go further down this road? And I think that morality is something you see um, James wrestling with through the movie you see he goes down that dark road obviously but even by the end of the movie you can see it's affected him in a way that it doesn't seem to have affected his other group of of uh orgy buddies from his his tourist group there and yeah i think that's it's really interesting to look at how privilege and power can really 
distort your worldview and your perception and your morality without that context. I think consequences, not to say that we need consequences, that people, if no one was looking, that we'd all be murderers and thieves. I don't think morality is that simple, but I think there's a component where consequences provide, they give guideposts, right? You, you have like, this is socially acceptable and it provides a context that's important, not, not the entire basis of morality, but I think it's an important component, I think, as, as Infinity Pool points out here. I think, um, I, I'm not sure if you hinted at, but essentially, like, James here has a couple of his toes still in Vilvo's moral guidelines, right? Like, it's very, he's curious. Yeah. He's fascinated by this. He hides his own passport so he doesn't have to leave right away because his wife is like, we are piecing out right now. But he manages to stay a little longer, but he's all into the drugs, and the sex and the orgies. And Mia Goth. And Mia Goth, yeah. I can't blame him. Um, she has become like the horror it girl in the past couple of years. We're, we're and, there, uh, there. I think this movie really, like, I don't know, like everyone watching this movie must be in love with Mia Goth at this point. Like how how could you not be? She's, uh, she's a pretty amazing actor and just, yeah, I don't know. She's one of those actors, like everything she does, I've seen her do, is like she's making these really interesting character choices and she's, her and... Alexander Skarsgård, they are in this like 100%. I will say that like this movie would not have worked without actors who are willing to put everything on the line and like Mia Goth and Alexander Skarsgård in particular, but all the main cast, they were, you could tell like they were a hundred percent invested. They were given a hundred percent in everything here. Without a doubt. Mia Goth is like the newest uh, or the latest like horror icon and everything she's doing yeah. right now. I mean, coming out with the X of Ben Pearl and there's another follow-up yeah. to that series, Maxine coming out this year, I believe. <laughs> uh, she's on top of the, uh, on top of the world right now. And she does really good in this movie. Oh yeah. I forgot what I was trying to say originally. So I'll, I'll move on to. Mia Goth will do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there was something about toes in the water there. Of, yeah. Morality. He still has a, he still has a moral code. Like when he's, you can see when, when the first, clone of his gets murdered you can see this look on his face like oh he's just like across that it's like oh i i i see what can happen i can i can now get away with anything but then when he actually tries it with a group of people you can see him he's having trouble integrating he's having trouble kind of shedding his moral compass where when is it after it's after they they trick him into capturing they paid for an extra clone of him and they thought they were capturing the police officer or whatever who kept bringing yeah. them in. He or he thought that, and he ends up like beating beating the crap out of this guy and peeing on him. Yeah. And then they take off the hood, and it's a clone of himself. And he sees himself that he's been doing, he's been self like, abusing himself. And he he runs. Out. It's too much for him to take. He runs out, and he goes back to his apartment. He see that's when you show that's when it shows that he actually hid the passport. It wasn't lost. So that he could stay and 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 try out this new, you yeah. know, party with his new buddies. But you can still see, yeah, like even when he's given the gun when they break into that um, police officer's house to or the official's house to start trying to steal his medal, they give him the gun. But you can see like he's not willing to shoot anybody, right? Yeah. He's he's never like Mia Goth's character there. She she tells him like, yeah, you you never held a gun before or something to that effect, and like he's not he's going down that path. He's he's, he thinks he wants to be part of that group, but he's not quite there yet. He still does have a moral compass um, somewhere deep inside of him. And so essentially it it is important to also throw out the context that he doesn't come from the rich background. He married rich. His wife is the rich one. He is a failed writer who presumably hasn't done anything for six years. Right. Not presumably, it's explicitly stated. He wrote <laughs> one book to middling reviews. Yeah, yeah. And then he's, six years, he's done nothing. He's done but nothing. But he's still rich enough to A, go to this f- really fancy resort, and B, pay to have multiple clones made of him. Yeah, because his wife is footing the bill. And even when they do the extension, I think they ask, us like, oh, what name are we going to be charging this to? And it's just like, it's his wife's name. Like, yeah. she's footing the bill. And it's revealed later on, after the reveal that he was beat up himself and peeing on himself. They're like another clone of himself. He, now he's done. He's trying to leave. He gets his passport and he's on the shuttle going to the airport and the, the gang of, uh, (laughs) 
Uh, well, I don't even want to know what we call the them tourists. here. If it was uh, Glass Onion, these would be the shitheads. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and so they come, and they basically stop the bus, and they pull him off, and now they're walking him back, uh, making him walk in front of the cars. And this is one of the best scenes of the movie is oh, Mia yeah. Goth uh, laying down on the on the hood of like this this vehicle that, and they're all like these retro vehicles. They're gorgeous. She's got a bucket of chicken on one side. She's got a gun <laughs> in her hand, and sorry, a gun on the thing, and she's got a, like a, a glass of wine in the other. Yeah, and she's of just wine, yeah. berating of James here and said, "Yeah, this is <laughs> like you're not really one of us. We were trying to find a sad sack to basically play with, and you were it." He was part of their games. Yeah, and he was never going to be part of it. And it's like, oh, that it was a clue that his morality was still being held somewhat intact. Like those toes were still in the morality pool. He wasn't going to go fully in because he <laughs> he's not he's not one of them. Like he has, still has that background. Interesting commentary on the rich too. As an aside, before you go on, is like, yeah, these these are people. When you get to that point where your morality is so warped, where your consequences are zero, yeah. they will eat each other too. You'll you'll do anything to anybody at a certain point, right? When you when you cross those lines, they don't care about if you're rich or poor, if it's if it's amusing to the to these kind yeah. of people, and they're, some of these people exist in real life, they will eat their own kind as well, right? Yeah, probably one of the funniest lines, and I wish I wrote it down exactly. Is basically telling James like what a dummy he is. I mean, he is kind of a dummy. I mean, when you're driving down the road in the night and your lights on your car start going out, he's just, he doesn't hit the brakes and pull over. He's going full tilt still. Yeah, I wonder if that's like an American thing. Because like my first instinct, like lights go, I've had that happen before. Where like light goes out or something on the car. Like first thing, like my foot's going on the brake. Like I'm slowing right down. Yeah, right? yeah. And so I, and I think it's this point of she's saying you're a dummy and the group of them were trying to figure a way to get this guy into trouble so that they could get him, pull him into their games. But he and did it's it by like, you're anyway. such a dummy <laughs> that he went and got himself into trouble. Just straight up killing a guy. He's just like, yeah, you were being doubled and your wife paid. Like, fantastic. Like, it was it was almost too easy of a game to, to bring him into. It was just, uh, it was hilarious. And I was like, Mia Goth was like, I didn't even read your stupid book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I was all, they were also all lies. It's just like, I mean, he's vain too, because it's like, you know, somebody out there recognizes his book and likes it. Probably literally the only one who has ever come up to him and said, yeah, I like your book. Because the, yeah. like they said, critically, it was just awful. That's how um, Mia Goth's character Gabby pulls him in. Is by She's like, oh, I, I recognize you um, yeah. a couple of days ago. I was like, you're this author who wrote this book, right? And she's playing to his vanity. I think um, Al Pacino's, um, you know, devil character from... Uh, the devil's advocate. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, Al Pacino's uh, devil character from the devil's advocate would be um, very, very um, uh, satisfied with this yeah. character because oh, yeah. van- vanity was his favorite sin. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and he, she plays, she plays him like a film. She flirts with him, but it's really, I think her, lo- her professing love of his book that really, really, you know, hooks him in and really turns him on. That's what, that's what, yeah, yeah gets his motor running to use a euphemism. And I like the fact that they don't try and ring in his wife. They don't try and bring his wife into the games. They have like no interest in her at all. Like she is one of their fellow rich people and maybe she's off limits or something, but he's just, he is the mark. Like it's like these other movies and stories where you see, it's just like, are you going to scan the crowd figure out who couldn't we manipulate the most here? You're like, this guy is it. I think just they recognize with M it would be, she had a stronger moral base. Um, so she wouldn't, she wouldn't be able to be pulled in, right? A- after the first execution, she's like, she's distraught like this and she doesn't want to watch it, but you have to watch it. It's part of the deal. And back at the, ho- at the resort, the hotel, she's, I can't remember the exact words, but it's kind of vague at first. She's like, oh my God, like this is, it's really disgusting. And he's just like, oh, you know, it's just like, no, you're disgusting. It's like, she's not disgusted with the process right now. She's disgusted with him and that he was watching it almost with like that fascination and kind of glee, like he was into it. And she saw that in him. Some great acting. Yeah. She saw that in him. And it was just like. He does that, that look on his face. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, she was out. She was completely out. Fast forwarding to that, like after the movie, like is she still with James? Like has she basically just left this guy entirely now? Or is she still going to support this guy when he eventually comes home? There was a conversation James had with Gabby when she was, 
continuing her seduction of him, like on the beach there when he was sitting wearing that really grotesque mask. Uh, I got to hand it to uh, the props department. Um, that was very, very Cronenbergian mask. Just sitting there with the mask and the cigars. Yeah, are you going to get one of those masks for your kids for Halloween? Um, yeah, I'm going to get the full set wherever they are. That's amazing. I'm just going to wear it everywhere now. And she specifically, he he says something along the lines of, oh, she left me, implying that she left him not just yeah, yeah. there, but that their relationship was in dire straits. That ties into another theme as well, or that Brandon Cronenberg uh, was diving into, whether intentionally or, or unintentionally, was that idea of like constructions of, of masculinity and toxic masculinity, maybe, where Mia Goth specifically says to James something along, along the lines of like, women like M will, you know, create or train men to be subservient and mm. weak. And it takes some time to like, you know, get them to retrain them to be, you know, masculine, to be men again, right? And I think there's something, there's a there's a common thread now. There's like men's rights advocates and, and really kind of misogynistic swaths online. They see changes and progress in how men are encouraged to, you know, talk about their feelings and, you know, look for help in terms of, you know, there was... Um, congressman recently who made the news because he checked himself in in the states for clinical depression and you see some people deriding him for being weak and some people like yeah it's, mm-hmm. it's okay you need to admit when you need when you need help right but there's this really weird strain in, in this toxic masculinity online where like they blame women for breeding you know weak men and she mirrors that language almost exactly. You see these exact kind of gross, disgusting conversations online, Yeah, you know, constructing masculinity in a very certain way, very old fashioned, maybe 1950s kind of way, you know, like men being dominant and being, you know, physically strong and not taking any, any crap from anybody, not being willing to compromise, not acknowledging their emotions. And that's how, like, that's how they define strength and, Mia Goth's character is really playing into that kind of sense of toxic masculinity. And it brings up all kinds of questions about how do we, how do we construct, like, what does it mean to be a man? What is, what does masculine mean? And uh, I think that's that, that playing with discussions of sexuality and identity. Those are common themes throughout infinity pool, but also throughout Brandon Cronenberg and David Cronenberg's work in general. Right. So I think it really, Mm -hmm ties you know that rug really uh pulls the room together <laughs> well said and um i mean we haven't really talked about it we mentioned at the beginning the dog i mean you, here you have her molding of the dog a james like a clone of james in a very short amount of time into a completely subservient uh you know man on leash uh calling him the dog uh, doing as she as she commands. Animalistic. Yeah, yeah. Crawling, naked, crawling on all fours, accepting. Yeah. So you got the bowl of the uh kind of it's burning almost like incense, but that hallucinogenic drug. Yeah, the tribal yeah. the from the locals goes back to like cultural appropriation again. It's like this is a drug yeah. that they says is used specifically for cultural and religious ceremonies, and they use it to get high and have orgies. Yeah. And and the dog is like taking huge whiffs and like he's he's ready to go kill like the quote unquote real James, because that's another philosophical question that's raised in the movie literally, but it had me thinking the whole time. It's like question of identity. You're doubled. Who is the real you? And one of the guys asked James, just like, so do you think you're the double or was the double killed? And everyone else is like, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. Don't think about it. Right. It's just dismissing that. But it's definitely something that gets me thinking afterwards, just like in all these clothing movies, like who is the real person? Regardless of who it is, it's like he's looking at himself as this animalistic dog on all fours. And it's just like, wow, I could be broken down in like 48 hours into this person, right? Like <laughs> that has to be pretty demoralizing, pretty demeaning when you, when you sit back and think about it. It's just like, you at what point do you start fighting for it, right? And he, he definitely fights the dog and it's pretty grotesque there. He fights the dog. Yeah, and he went, that's the scene we were talking about where he literally... It's implied like he's beaten this guy to a bloody pulp. Like his face is like, 
his skull's getting caved in. Like you see yeah. like flashes of like the eye kind of just like it's out of its sockets and the, the blood and the gore, you see the flesh being ripped away from the skull and everything. Like he beats himself to death. I was going to say, before I get into one of the questions about the font finale of the movie, I just want to point out how funny this one element is, is that he is packing up to go home and one of the things we didn't mention before, but every time your clone is killed, you oh, get yes. an urn with it with its ashes in it. And so he's packing up his overhead view of his suitcase. He's fitting all three urns, and they're pretty decent size, into a suitcase and like taking care to wrap them up in clothing and stuff. Like this is your souvenir. Like when I travel, I buy fridge magnets, okay? Be- <laughs> right? I'll just buy fridge. I'll go to a local tour shop, buy a, a, a cheap looking magnet put up on my fridge when I get home as a, as a, as a token. Uh, these people are coming home with urns of people. Uh, when they, where do they put that over their mantle? It's like, who, who's in there? So it's like some family relative, sort of, sort of. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think again, it ties into that theme of cultural appropriation. Here's this doubling ceremony, which obviously has huge cultural and religious significance to the local yeah. people. And to these guys and girls, it's just another souvenir they can take home. You know, like we murdered a bunch of people and then we cloned ourselves and those clones yeah. were murdered in our place. And we get to take home the ashes as a souvenir. Uh, whereas like it's implied that this is part of, you know, the doubling ceremony is deeply rooted in um, the indigenous people's culture. So again, yeah, that idea of cultural appropriation or that's kind of, exploitation and privilege of taking another person's culture and turning it into this, another souvenir you hang on your fridge in your case. (laughs) Yeah. You Western (laughs) devil. (laughs) So the, the finale of the movie is they're all going back in the shuttle and all the rich people, the, the group of deviants deviants. Yes. That's a good word for them. Deviants. Um, Yes. Yeah. These deviants are just talking about their regular lives. They have to go back to work, all the projects they're working on, et cetera. And they're at the airport now. He looks around. There's all the other non-deviants. They're just going to go back home. Everyone's going home. And he stays. He goes back to the resort. It is now rainy season. He's sitting on a beach chair in the pouring rain. What happened here? What does all that mean? I want to hear your take on the final scenes of this movie. Uh, first of all, I thought it was it was really powerful and really drove the point home. You see Alexander Skarsgård sitting at the back of the bus and you can see the events, even though, like, yeah, he was dipping his toes into that depravity. And, he, you know, he killed the guy or killed multiple people. He was in the orgy being unfaithful to his wife and all yeah. this stuff. And you can see it's like, but it's still weighing on him to some degree. Something in him has changed. Something that he can't just shed. But you see all the other, his group of rich tourists there. And they're just talking about all the kind of stuff that you and I would talk about when leave, when getting uh, near the end of a vacation, like, oh, what are we going to do when we yeah. get back home? Oh, I'm going to go, we need to do our laundry and we're going to get ready for work next week. And they're talking about, as I've, like, they're so desensitized. It's become so normal for them to yeah. exploit and murder and steal, etc. that it's just, it's another holiday for them. And they go back home. And that scene when Alexander Skarsgård, um, James, is sitting in the airport and he's looking at all these different people. I think the idea wasn't that they weren't depraved. The idea was looking around like all of these people who seem like normal everyday people in the real world back home, which of them is also depraved enough Like when they're on vacation and they have, and all of a sudden it's like, Oh, you're going to a a less wealthy country and you have, and that amount of privilege and power shifts and all of a sudden you can do things here and get away with things that you couldn't do and get away with back home. How many of those people that he's looking mm-hmm. at that seem innocuous, that seem mundane, how many of them are going to do the exact same depraved, morally reprehensible things that he and his friends were doing? Looking around, you you can't tell, right? You don't know. It would be so great if you could just look at somebody and say, oh, that guy is a murderer. But you can't. You can't yeah. look at somebody and see that. So looking around, he's looking at people and seeing for the first time, like, oh, any one of these people could be the murderer, thief, rapist, just waiting for the opportunity to have 
a consequence free environment or have the privilege and power to act on their own worst impulses. I think it was really, really haunting to me. And he goes back to the hotel, I think partially because there's a couple things I think commenting. One is like, sometimes when you go on vacation and you go to a certain place and you feel like, Oh, I never want to go back again. There's There's a play on that. It's like, Oh, the culture or whatever affects you so deeply. Oh. And I think there's an episode of like, I think how I met your mother, or I think uh, Robin comes back and she's a little wearing the dreads and everything. And, oh, yeah, yeah. and she won't like, go with like the so island culture or whatever. It's like all laid back and everything. But I think there's a, there's an aspect of, of that, but also I think you see this has affected him so deeply. The events of the past, you know, a couple of weeks have affected him so deeply and so fundamentally changed his worldview where he's yeah, yeah. half in that world of moral depravity and still half in that world of like, Oh, his moral compass isn't completely out of whack yet. And he feels like he can't go back to civilized society though. Something fundamentally about him has changed where he doesn't fit in there. He doesn't fit in necessarily with the locals in on the Island. And so he's caught in this kind of weird purgatory, both literally literal and moral purgatory where he's in. He doesn't feel like he's not, doesn't belong in any of these worlds now. It's a very, very haunting, powerful ending. I thought. The, um, I couldn't have said it any better myself. I think that was really, yeah, a really good take on the ending there. I'll just throw out. Put that on a fridge magnet, Brian. Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> it'll be a big one. <laughs> we'll print that out, sell it on the Real Film Chronicle storefront. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be ready to buy some magnets soon. Um, I just have one thing to say because I can't, I can't add any more actual context to the. I, I have one other thing to say as well before we get into ratings uh, for the ending the literal optimistic person in me sometimes you know he comes out and i am hoping that james is able to take this experience and use this inspiration to write one hell of a book and be successful with a story in of this of this community of this craziness into a best selling novel and he'll get some of his fame and he'll get his rise Maybe not into the full rich like like this group of deviants is, but he'll get a taste of that on his own, earning it himself instead of just like marrying into it. I'm hoping that he makes atones in this culture by staying there and integrating with her society better, understanding them more so, and maybe helping in some way. That's the optimistic view I have of him staying back, but uh, that's probably a misread. At, yeah. in, in You're also bit. forgetting he did kill a man with yeah. his car. He. He pulled a Matthew Broderick. Uh, he should be in jail. Well, he did. And, uh, I mean, well, in this country, he shouldn't be in jail. He should be murdered. And he was murdered in, in a way. His clone was murdered. But he may still feel sort guilt of, yeah. for that and still feel, I'm going to stay here and like serve out like another form of sentence. Because oh, maybe their he, judicial maybe system- Maybe you're thinking he, he has a sense, he wants to have fulfilled some kind of sense of atonement for yeah. these people. That's interesting. Yeah. You you are more, more hopeful than I am. Yeah. <laughs> You're a lot less cynical. Because in his one of his final, uh, like he gets shot in the leg and he's he's passed out. One of his final like drug fueled dreams is the little boy of the man he killed, who killed his clone, uh, basically coming <sighs> over to strangle him. And it's just like obviously he's still feeling a lot of guilt there. Well, I should say obviously that's how I took it. He still felt oh, guilt no. that this kid, hundred uh, percent. Also, yeah, that kid, the casting for that oh, kid, yeah. was bang on. Hopefully that kid gets a career. He needs to get a good agent because like that kid, he nailed, like he was super creepy in that dream sequence. (laughs) And like, just like the intensity when he was like stabbing and essentially to the point of disemboweling. Oh um, yeah. Oh, it's so gnarly. uh, James's clone or James himself. We may never know. It was just like, you could see look on his face. Like, yeah, like this is a little kid doing an an adult thing. And you could see it's like he wants to get revenge for his father, but you could see this is this is the kind of thing that stays with a man forever. That's gonna mess him up for yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, hundred percent. So I guess we should get into our ratings unless you have one more thing. One other thing I wanted to touch base on in terms of themes, one of the big ones too was this idea of self hatred, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have some kind of really fundamental sense of self loathing to watch yourself be brutally executed (laughs) and as james does the first time not only not feel remorse or empathy 
but have a sense of like have a light bulb go off in his head like oh yeah i i understand a guy an inkling of, i understand what this means or like that scene where there are all the rich people are clapping um, i think there's a scene there's a sense of especially with the james character there's a sense of self-loathing and self-hatred where it's almost like this act of you know literally watching yourself get brutalized and brutally murdered and maybe even in the context of that last scene like you were talking about maybe it was metaphorical where certain parts of him were getting killed off maybe the the worst parts of him in yeah. in Brian's hopeful reading <laughs> maybe the he was watching you know bits of him all the worst parts of him were getting killed off and what we see at the end is a is a more pure version um for Brian for me it's a a broken man stuck in a moral purgatory. And for Brian, it's uh, <laughs> a man w- with a sense of purpose to uh, atone for the sins of the past. Um, either way, you know, like you can, it's the great thing about this movie is you can read it in a number of different ways and they're all um, equally valid based on the reading. It t- comes with your interpretation. I think that's a mark of a, of a great movie where you can, you know, especially something like this, where you're dealing with, you know, incredibly powerful ideas and themes and exploring them in a way that allows people to you know, have a conversation where it feels like the start of a conversation as opposed to somebody trying to end a conversation or like saying, yeah. this is the one right answer. And that's what I really appreciate about not just Infinity Pool, but movies in general when they, it feels like, and I think we talked about this with Jordan Peele as well and all his movies, um, especially Nope, the latest one, where it's, you know, it's, it's about starting these conversations about really important social and cultural issues and not coming in with um, a finality of, Oh, this is the right and only answer, but no, he, here are some really complex ideas that we as a society have to wrestle with. Let's use this as a starting point to talk about those. And I thought that was a uh, uh, really excellent part of infinity pool as well. Without a doubt. One of James first lines of the movie is where are we as they're sitting there, like eating lunch at the resort. And I think at the end of the film, he may have figured out where they are. With that, let's get into some ratings. And as always, I mean, we're letterbox addicts. your ratings, Brian. I mean, we don't have to do ratings. Maybe you can't quantify everything, Brian. (laughs) It's just a feeling. You know, this is just a, (laughs) I mean, it's a valid thing. Like our (laughs) podcast has evolved over time. And it's like, we tried to have little structures here and there. And we have evolved past the need for ratings. Right. I mean, we used to ask each, each other, like, are we going to buy this movie, et cetera? That doesn't really happen anymore. Uh, but ratings. The answer is usually yes. The answer yes. is usually yes, right? <laughs> we will literally buy everything. It's not that interesting of an answer. <laughs> because we have that privilege. Yeah. So we use the Litterbox five-star system that has a special like uh, to, the, to, to add to that, if you so please. I gave the movie on first viewing three and a half stars. And then on second viewing, because I did have to, well, I didn't have to watch it again, but I wanted to watch it again. (laughs) The things you make me do for this podcast, yeah. (laughs) Literally like a week and a half apart, I'm watching it again, and I'm like, well, that's an easy four star. I mean, maybe next viewing goes up to four and a half. Um, I was surprised at how like easily the movie went by you know what i mean like the movie is just about two hours long like an hour 55 or something and you're thinking okay there's a few scenes i remember very distinctly it might take a while to get there but no 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 this movie like you're eating up every scene like that i had no urge to look at my phone or anything on second viewing i'm fully attuned to the to this film and i'm loving the performances here i'm loving i mean the atmosphere of the film it, it all pulls me in i thought it was just really good all around uh, where are you landing on Infinity Pool? Uh, I think currently, um, initial viewing, I ranked it like a four out of five, thinking that might get bumped up to maybe four and a half or maybe with that heart. That is to say, like I really, really love this movie. I've been a fan of, I think, Antiviral, I think I gave three and a half, four stars. I think Possessor, which I still yeah, absolutely loved Possessor. I think that was like four and a half. And I think this is going to wind up at least four and a half as well. I think, um, you know, despite a lot of talk these days about uh, nepotism in the entertainment industry, I I don't know what to say. Brandon Cronenberg's work has been impeccable so far. It's been really, really good. I've been really impressed and I can't, can't wait to see what he does next. But yeah, Infinity Pool was, I thought it was, it was bang on and early contender for me for uh, top 10 of 2023. 
I, I saw an interesting uh, uh, take on the on the Nepo baby argument of, of Brandon Cronenberg in, in one of his reviews that it was, it was essentially saying David Cronenberg always struggles to find funding for his movies. And a lot of it, he took advantage, yes. <laughs> especially like the 70s and 80s, of the Canadian like arts uh, fund of pool, uh, fund of money and whatnot to get funded for his movies. And it was a struggle. And I think he still struggles to find financing for this. It's like- Absolutely. Brandon Cronenberg is probably going through the same stuff. He might get a little bit of credit for the Cronenberg name, but I mean, he's not like producing a ton of content. Uh, he did antiviral yeah. ten years ago, and these are by no means like huge budget movies or anything. Um, but to, no. I, I think, especially with Possessor, has like really pushed him out there to get somebody like Alexander Skarsgård as your leading man. I mean, this guy probably has an interest in, in some interesting movies. Yeah, hundred percent. I don't want to let Brandon Cronenberg off the hook no, completely no. in terms of nepotism talk. Cause I think that's an important conversation to have. Not just in the entertainment industry, but in a lot of industries, we see nepotism take over. So I don't want to let him off the hook entirely. But on the other hand, his movies have been awesome so far. So yeah, <laughs> like he's he's putting out the content, he's doing the work, and he's building his own brand. You see influences from his father David Cronenberg, but I think you would like you and I touched um, talked about earlier in the podcast. Infinity Pool really felt like yeah, he's playing in the same thematic space as his father, but you feel like oh, this is a filmmaker with his own distinct vision and 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 kind of feel and his own his own passion and that really comes through an infinity pool i think and that's a wrap on another episode as always we appreciate you hanging out with us today and taking the time to listen to our podcast we have a lot of fun putting these together and hope that you get some enjoyment out of them as well you can find us online over at realfilmchronicles.com, where we have not just a repository of podcast episodes, but many of our written reviews as well. If you're up to it, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram as well. All the links should be within the show notes here. So until next time, take care of yourself and others, and be sure to enjoy your film journey.